Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about the private credit market. A very interesting topic right now. Joining me is Jamie Shulman, co-founder and fund manager at Meriwether Group Capital. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you much, very much, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and you know, I keep using the um, may you live in interesting times, the ancient Chinese curse, and it seems like we may be entering into interesting times in the credit market. Maybe we're not quite in the interesting times, um, but before we get to that macro picture, um, could you tell us a little bit of background on Meriwether Group? Sure. Well, Meriwether Group uh, Capital was really kind of formed out of this idea that uh, there's, a, in my opinion, an underserved niche of small businesses needing access to capital that fit just kind of on the edges of what traditional banks and other financial to institutions like to focus on. And that doesn't make them a bad borrower by any means, but it just means that someone needs to spend a little extra attention with these kinds of companies and they need to get paid for the risk too. And uh, that, that was kind of the genesis for uh, what we ended up uh, creating. So could we actually define small business or medium-sized business? I, mean, I know the acronym SNB. What's the, what's the technical definition if, if it exists? Yeah, it doesn't exist. And okay. having spent 25 <laughs> plus years of in banking prior to this, you know, I, I'd say that there's kind of a, a wide range. I kind of define small businesses, operating entities with revenues, maybe as low as one or two million up to maybe 75 million. And with EBITDA or cash flow of maybe at least five hundred thousand up to maybe three or four million, I think once you get bigger than that, now you're really talking real uh, middle market types of businesses. Got it. Okay. And so your group, you service the small businesses, but also the the lower middle market. Is that right? Yeah, I almost say kind of emerging middle market. So these are typically uh, profitable, EBITDA positive, growing businesses that are just looking for a little extra access to capital to accelerate their growth. And and why is it that banks, you know, don't really serve this group of businesses? I imagine there might be a variety of reasons. Yeah, that's a great question. It can be a number of things. One could be the limitations of the bank itself and its own legal lending limit. Uh, banks also have real um, restrictions around their pricing models, credit models, and, you know, I, I've just seen an ability to or an unwillingness to maybe think a little bit outside the box when it comes to companies that are growing at a fast rate. Um, and my experience in banking had been uh, really banks really like to see incremental growth year over year with businesses. Mm. And so fast growing ones who are looking to tap into new markets, new products or expand customer relationships can struggle sometimes finding an appropriate access amount of access to capital. And I think banks are great partners for these businesses, but sometimes businesses just need a little bit more kind of beyond that. Got it. It sounds like um, 
creativity or flexibility maybe is key for these kind of deals. So, I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of uh, like upside, even, you know, warrants or, you know, preferred stock, common stock option, you know, all sorts of different um, ways you can get paid that you can combine upside along with normal debt. I would imagine that uh, traditional banks just have a harder time quantifying that and just being flexible and valuating all that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, my experience in banking, again, has been uh, it's a rate and fee driven model. There's mm -hmm. a, cr a credit policy and a pricing policy. And if something is uh, maybe beyond that, banks really struggle. And that's where companies like ours and other really commercial mezzanine lenders, which is what we're describing, can be very creative around how we uh, get price to risk. And that's a very wide spectrum. And there's a, a variety of ways of doing that, both in kind of upfront yield between rate and fee and exit fees and uh, maybe warrants or other types of kind of uh, sweeteners that sometimes go along with these types of transactions. Yeah. I mean, the, the what you said about banks being fee-driven businesses, that rings true even as a consumer. <laughs> I think everyone <laughs> would say that that rings true. Well, so the banks, they basically have... Um, certain products, certain uh, boxes, I guess we could almost say they have certain boxes. And so if a business doesn't neatly fit into that box, if they don't have a, um, you know, a neat, nice product that sort of checks off the list for everything that's required for that product, they just don't fit in as a client, even if they might be a profitable client, even if, you know, you can, you, even if someone like you is more experienced with underwriting this, you can sort of see there might be a favorable risk reward um, they're not going to fit into that traditional mold or that that very structured mold, I guess, that a bank would provide. So could you tell us a little bit about, I guess, how your fund makes money? I mean, obviously, risk, reward, you know, fees and, and, and interest rate. But, you know, are there other um, like little known sources of revenue? Like, sure. like you talked a little bit about warrants, like, I guess, where where is your upside beyond just the, the normal income that you'd have? From sure. the interest, sure. So we've really focused on lending between five loans between five hundred thousand and five million, and that's a really good space for us. Uh, what I have um, kind of observed and seen just in in years of banking is that there are other commercial mezzanine lenders out there, but most of which kind of start where we leave off. And you know, I, I don't feel that it's right that if you need to borrow, let's say, ten million dollars, you have many choices of lenders to go to. Whereas if you're seeking 5 million or less, there's kind of limited choices. So that's really the niche that we're trying to, to serve. And uh, loan demand for us, frankly, is very, very strong right now because there's just a limited number of lenders who are doing kind of the space we are, mm -hmm. which is not always easy to do uh, efficiently and get paid appropriately for the risk. Um, so when we price our loans, we have a, a minimum kind of all-in yield that we're seeking between rate and fee to get into a transaction. And then we are looking for um, other kind of back-end sweeteners that could be uh, an exit fee, sometimes warrants, although that is much more common kind of as you move up the debt level. And on smaller loans, it's a little bit less common. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we're doing is really solving more of a bridge type uh, need, whereas uh, we're helping our client um, most often with kind of access to permanent working capital. It's kind of our number one request. Occasionally, we'll get something for um, a desire to acquire another business or a management buyout. 
but most of the time it's permanent working capital to help a business um, take on a new product line, expand a client relationship, or get into a new geographic market. And because that's the typical request we get, our terms are pretty short. So our average loan is about 18 months. And so we're really maximizing kind of our economics in the upfront rate and fee. And on longer transactions, warrants would be much more common. Uh, and we do see those kinds of opportunities, but it's less so because we're doing more of a bridge type of transaction. So if if your fund, if your company is is providing credit in this gap, right? We can call it a gap, right? I mean, it's it's sort of a market gap. Is this situation getting worse right now? Because I mean, you know, the headlines I'm reading is a lot of small businesses, as you define them, uh, the financial picture is quickly deteriorating. I mean, we know that from just the data, the leading indicators that the consumer, uh, the wage earners' financial situation is deteriorating. Right? We can see that from savings and consumer debt levels. And in my experience, the small business arena is very tightly correlated to the consumer arena. So is this gap getting even larger? Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I have a couple of thoughts there. You know, first of all, um, again, having spent a long time in commercial lending, uh, something that I've always appreciated is that very good loans can be made in the very worst of times. And conversely, really bad loans can also be made in the very best of times. So kind of regardless of what the economic picture is going on, there's still um, many companies that are doing just fine and figure out ways to pivot and expand even when conditions aren't great. And could, could I could I stop you there? I just think sure. that's interesting because it almost and and I've not worked in credit, you know, or banking, but it almost sounds like you know it, when we're in a time of economic turbulence, maybe everyone's more realistic about risk. <laughs> you know, well, sure, and you know, the, the, a pandemic, frankly, is a great yeah. example of this because you know, on the onset of let's say early 2020, there was definitely a sense in the in the banking world of kind of a economic and credit apocalypse, frankly. Mm -hmm. And this is before PPP or other government stimulus was introduced. But what I really recognized, as did others, is that businesses and entrepreneurs are very resilient and figure out a way to pivot in the right direction to make sure that they're sustainable regardless of what's going on in the world around them. And I saw that time and time again. <clears throat> now, what we're seeing today is that um, as there's more and more kind of economic concern, financial institutions very naturally kind of tighten and sh shrink their credit window. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that we're seeing you know less opportunities. We're actually seeing more as conditions like this um, evolve, but there's plenty of businesses who are doing just fine, who understand how to deal with customer concentrations or supply chain issues or things like that. Um, and you know, it creates more and more opportunities uh, for companies like ours. Got it. Okay. Well, zooming out again to that macro picture, I wanted to ask about interest rates because so now I'm sort of coming at this from the angle of an LP, um, you know, from an investor who's, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, everyone was starved for yield, right? Like, I, I you know, I, I know I was invested in some municipal bond funds, uh, like short, medium term funds. And the, the, the interest, the, the yield rather was 150 basis points or just something sure. silly. Well, against that sort of a yield, like a 
or 11% yield, that's a huge spread. But now it seems like the risk, the risk-free rate has has increased somewhat, you know, depending on how you define it, maybe 200 basis points or or whatever. Um, Does that make it harder, I guess, for a fund like yours that's, you know, higher on that risk return profile? Does it make it harder to to provide value or um, or do interest rates adjust so much that, you know, you're you're more than compensated for that? Yeah. So again, a, cu- a couple of thoughts there. So we are really structured on the fund side is an income style fund. Mm-hmm. So we have a target return annually of 10% to our investors. We pay a distribution every quarter. Preservation of capital is our number one priority and then paying a, a quarterly uh, distribution. And we've exceeded our target every quarter since uh, inception. And uh, we will again for the fourth quarter here. So, you know, for an investor, this is, um, a really attractive option for those who are maybe ha- have excess liquidity, they don't know what to do with, or they already have maybe some assets in fixed income. Um, they might be more conservative. And here's a way to say, okay, I'm going to take a slice of that in more of an alternative income fund um, in exchange for a mod, in my opinion, a modest degree of credit risk, and then have maybe a blended return of something greater than that. So we also have um, a two-year lockup on any initial investments in our fund. So the most kind of comparable uh, risk-free investment might be like a two-year treasury. Mm-hmm. Today, that's in, I don't know, high threes, low fours. That's kind of fluctuated. It's probably, um, you know, who knows where that will go over time. And so the the question our investors are asking is, okay, is three to 4% kind of risk-free for maybe a two-year time horizon um, better or worse than, you know, a, a 10% return with some degree of credit risk. You know, I don't know. I, I think the Delta is still significant enough and we've been able to onboard and attract enough investors that I think the the difference is worth it. Now, like any other alternative investment, I would never recommend that this is 100% of some of those portfolio, but it's meant to kind of augment what people already have in place. And so I think the the return opportunity is uh, still attractive. In addition to that, um, we depending on the duration of our loan and the risk profile, we do both fixed rate and more frequently floating rate loans. So mm-hmm. as interest rates change, our investors are reaping the upside of that alongside uh, of us. Interesting. Okay. Now, you know, speaking with a couple asset managers recently, I've heard one theme. And it's not universal, but the theme is that there's just more opportunity in the credit markets right now than there are in, say, the you know real estate equity markets. And so, you know, they're seeing some allocations with family offices, with very high net worth, ultra high net worth investors that are, you know, allocating a bit more to the private credit market. Have you seen that play out? Um, you know, for, for, I guess for, from your vantage point. Sure. So, you know, I kind of look at uh, both sides of our balance sheet when thinking about that question. So on the one side, we have our our borrowers. Yeah. And we have a good portfolio of um, good credit operating entities, all are performing as agreed. Um, And frankly, we have much more loan appetite than we could possibly serve right now. So we have not unlimited supply of investments to make in terms of loans, but um, the future is seems pretty uh, optimistic to me in terms of opportunities to bring in more quality borrowers who are willing to 
uh, take on the, the pricing profile that, that we work with. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of upside there. So mm-hmm. our, really our limiter is the ability to find uh, limited partners who are interested in investing in this type of vehicle. We started the year at, at zero. We were a brand new fund at the beginning of the year. Today, we just crossed over the $10 million mark. We have about 27 investors in our fund today. Kind of our average is maybe 350000 per investor. So we're very, very small compared to a lot of these other bigger ones. Uh, but I think uh, they see the value in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And because we're an open-ended or evergreen style fund, we can continue to grow in perpetuity uh, as long as we can continue to find quality investments in the form of loans to make. And right now, given our model kind of limited competition and what's going on with in banking in general, you know, I'm pretty optimistic about uh, our upside opportunity over the next few years, at least. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, you mentioned uh, a two-year lockup, I believe, and, you know, a lot of private equity funds, you know, and I know the alternatives landscape is changing, right? So you'll have interval funds or other kinds of intermittent liquidity products. But aside from that, you know, with a product like a Delaware statutory trust or a lot of these other illiquid alts, they have like a five-year lockup or, or even longer. So how does the redemption uh, work with your sure. product? Sure. So I think maybe I'll answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, let me, I'll just kind of share what we are not and then what we are. So mm-hmm. we're not a growth fund. We're never going to have a 20 or 30% upside or downside because of our pricing discipline on our loans. Our goal is to be 10% annually year in and year out. And if we are you know, higher than that, our, our LPs share in that upside. Uh, so we're not an equity fund, we're a credit fund. The reason that we have a two-year lockup and not something longer than that or shorter is because the average duration of our loans are about 18 months. Again, we're doing a lot of kind of bridge-type purpose lending. And so you know, we're not highly liquid in terms of we don't have loans paying off every day that create liquidity, but we have enough um, over the course of every quarter and year that we can uh, manage redemptions when those occur. Um, so we do ask for our investors to, to be in it for at least two years with us. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, we've exceed, met or exceeded returns and we're not expecting uh, limited partners to want to exit at that point, but they can with, a, I think, a 90-day uh, notification to us and they can redeem some or all the principal. Distributions, in addition to that, get paid either in cash or limited partners can just add that back to their capital account. And those are available to be taken at any point in time. Understood. Okay. <clears throat> I, you know, the product makes sense. I like how clear you are about it that, you know, what, what we are not, we're not a growth fund. You know, you're not going to have a 30% year over year, you know, growth or anything like that. But there's a perennial appeal of income. I mean, yeah. If- <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm all about um, let's keep it simple and stay in your lane. And that's kind of been my whole career is make sure we don't try to do things that we're not good at. And we're commercial lenders. That's what we do best. Uh, we don't take uh, equity positions alongside of debt. We just do l- lending. And that allows us to stay very focused mm-hmm. and then also make sure that we're matching our energies around what our uh, limited partners are expecting in terms of uh, return to them. So given your point, you know, you're a commercial lender, that's what you're good at. And, and by the way, as an aside, I wouldn't necessarily say stay in your lane, but but the idea of knowing what you're good at and leading with your strength and even having a niche product, for my stand as an LP, I love that, you know, because 
every product is 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 unique or at least it should be and a product that tries to be all things to all people it's it's like it's to me it fails from the get-go um you know so i love that you're able to explain what your product is what it isn't uh with that you know i'd say you have like a 10 second elevator pitch so okay. um <laughs> i'm gonna give you an a plus for that now Appreciate shifting it. shifting to to the you know the fact that you're a commercial lender um you know that's the space that you know you've been there a long time it's what you're good at i think potentially you could be the canary in the coal mine if if we're you know if we're headed into a rough 2023 i think you know folks in your position in your industry you might be seeing some funny stuff first you know maybe before some of the rest of us do what do you think the chances are of a real a a, a blow up of some kind or or b just a credit market um freeze do, yeah. do you think there's any probability of that in the so next 12 give, months yeah so i'll give you my um my my joke answer and then my real one okay so my sure. joke answer is if i knew <laughs> the answer to that we'd probably be having this conversation on my yacht okay <laughs> so i don't <laughs> i mean it's really hard to tell yeah. but my serious answer to that is you know our um our underwriting does not stop after we book a loan. We collect mm -hmm. financial reporting on all of our borrowers in almost all cases monthly. So we have a really good uh, kind of a pulse on what's going on with these businesses all mm -hmm. the way from closing through maturity. You know, I, I'm not seeing right now um, anything that would indicate a, a, a massive blow up. Again, my um, focus is on how are these businesses pivoting or redirecting or refocusing their energies as things um, start to change? And do they have uh, customer concentration issues or supply chain issues? And have they thought through those things? And we really focus on companies that have you know the right answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. And we stay in touch. I mean, we're there to be kind of in their circle of trusted advisors, uh, not just for closing the loan, but all the way through maturity and you know hopefully uh, beyond. So, so then if you're not seeing serious disruptions, that could be based on your ability to, you know, <laughs> to do good underwriting, right? To identify well, yeah. businesses that it, are less sensitive. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of, again, we keep things really simple. When we start yeah. our analysis with two very basic questions, how do you make money and how are you going to pay us back? And if we can understand the answers to those questions, there's probably a path to a yes. And frankly, if we can't understand the answers, then forget it. And you and I tell my borrowers, you know, treat me like I'm in seventh grade and help me understand what you do. Because, you know, in a worst case scenario, we might have to step in and operate one of these businesses. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we tend to focus our energies around companies that are kind of loosely in manufacture, wholesale, distribution types of industries. Uh, we tend to shy away from more kind of technology or maybe bioscience or, you know, these kinds of companies that are um, on a more challenging or just kind of less uh, easy to understand trajectory. And that keeps it really simple for us. And that helps us also after we've closed the loan, kind of understand the trends of what's going on all the way through again to maturity. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, starting with those two questions, 
I guess, are the first two steps in a due diligence process. But could you talk a little bit about that process? You know, how long does it does it take? How extensive is it? Is it similar to due diligence that someone would make uh, with an equity investment, or is it different? Yeah, you know, I'd say um, again, we don't do equity, but I be- but I believe that we can operate in a very uh, fast and nimble manner. We have a very small team. I'm essentially, you know, the chief credit officer in the in the banking uh, world, and so um, we have a small group that makes decisions. We like to be very decisive. Um, we have kind of a, a both a traditional approach to credit analysis, where we're collecting financials, we're reviewing key metrics senior and total debt to EBITDA of three and four respectively are kind of things that we really zero in on. But then we take a real um, kind of holistic view of a business that includes face-to-face meetings. We're walking the machine shop floor. We're sitting down with the management team. And as I learned many years ago in banking, there's a, a real value in being able to sit down and just really look into the whites of the eyes of the CEO, owner, et cetera, and know that they're going to pay you back. And that's a little bit of the art and less of the science, but I think it's really combining those two things that allows us to make uh, good credit decisions. So you referenced that you have, you know, a smaller team, you know, a a leaner operation, I I suppose. Is that what really enables you to serve this market? Because I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, there's... I'm theorizing here and you tell me if I'm going off base, there's probably a relatively fixed amount of work that goes into a deal and goes into a due diligence process, whether we're talking about a $10 million company or a $100 million company or a $1 million loan or a $10 million loan. And so that may be you know, some of the reason that larger institutions that banks shy away from these kind of deals is maybe they have a higher cost structure or you know that the, these deals are just outside their their sweet spot. So, is there a sweet spot? I, I guess for you in terms of, um, you know, like a minimum deal size where a deal smaller than that, you know, it you just can't make the economics work. So, so your you, your exact your theory is exactly true. And <laughs> you know, this isn't just true in kind of banking and lending, but really in any business, as the business gets bigger, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to kind of move up market in terms of who their client is because they've added, let's say, people or real, you know, uh, the office space or, you know, whatever it is. And you need to kind of be doing bigger things to operate with the same level of efficiency. So for us, you know, we market that we do loans 500,000 to 5 million. Our average loan today is just over 1.5 million. And that's a great loan for us. And, you know, frankly, 500,000 is a great loan for us too. We can do those very efficiently and make it worthwhile for borrower, investor, and ourselves. Okay. But but then there gets to a point, uh, I don't know if it's $200,000 or, or whatever, where it's just, it's, you, you can't, you basically can't complete the due diligence process and, and, and charge a fee that's fair for everybody that makes you money and that's fair to them. Is, is that basically yeah. just, a- we have, yeah, we have yet to do a loan that's less than 500,000. That's kind of the soft maybe floor for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be willing to look at something like that, but uh, that might be more energy than is is worthwhile for a company like ours. What about the um, this is, this maybe is a little bit of a curveball, but it it strikes me that your fund, your company, are providing a, a, a like a, a social benefit. 
you know, it's it's not an ESG fund, but yeah. but just just the the the, the fact. Like I, you know, I'd imagine that just just enabling small and mid-sized businesses to do acquisitions, to working capital, to expand, uh, you know, what's the most rewarding part, I guess, of doing your yeah. job is, is what I'm so, driving at. So I'm smiling because you're you're absolutely right, and and I'm not an overly idealistic person in that. Um, we are a commercial banker. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> I spoke. So, you know, uh, meeting and exceeding our expectations yep. to our investors is really important to me. Yeah, we will do everything we can to make good loans such that we can do that. Having said that, uh, the businesses that we support, first of all, uh, geographically or predominantly, we market Pacific Northwest. It's mostly West Coast, but we can go anywhere. But thinking about the fact that we're doing mostly permanent working capital you know, we do take pride in the fact that we are supporting, you know, small business in our backyard for the most part. Um, this is spurring economic growth in the communities that we're in. Uh, in many cases, this does create jobs and helps kind of really local economies. And so we do feel really good about that. You know, I, I don't know that we ever really lead with that, but for our investors, I mean, that, that's a good thing. And, you know, I kind of think about uh, this business versus others that can sometimes be like a zero sum game where someone's got to lose for us to win. And our business is not like that. I mean, for our uh, borrowers, you know, as I think about their choices of growing, if they've kind of maxed out what they can do with their bank, you know, their choices are they could sell equity, which is very expensive and dilutive, mm -hmm. uh, or they could take on a little bit of additional debt if they can find it. And so we're providing, you know, a, a, a a product that's more expensive than bank debt, but it's worthwhile for them to be able to, to grow. And so this is really a win-win for borrower, investor, and you know, ourselves, which I feel really good about. And I think our investors feel good about too. Yeah, there's a lot of interest even among investors for you know uh, American-made, you know, American manufacturing. Um, you know, I've seen it in the opportunity zones world, you know, investors do get excited about, you know, being part of revitalizing sectors of the economy, revitalizing geographic areas with, with real estate projects, you know, multifamily manufacturing, you name it. So I think it's important, you know, because at the end of the day, um, it's not all just about dollars and cents and even, even, you know, family offices, institutional investors, it's, they're making decisions partly based on impact and and on their goals and mission that you know aside from just the pure dollars and cents. Um, but turning back to the dollars and cents, because those are important. If you had to give some advice to an LP or to an RIA who wanted to invest in this type of product, you know, an income product, preserving capital with you know a, a fairly high yield. What advice would you give to an RIA or an LP who's, who wants to, you know, eval evaluate different funds and, you know, maybe do some due diligence of the funds themselves? Sure. Well, I, I you know, I think what's really important is to understand, well, what are the underlying assets in this fund? And mm -hmm. is it complementary to or maybe redundant with other things you have? And, you know, that, that's why I really like what we do, because there's really uh, very few or any other debt in or uh, investment instruments out there that have a portfolio of commercial non-real estate loans uh, to businesses that are kind of that uh, small business to emerging middle market category. And so if someone's already got really a portfolio of those, or maybe they own a small business and this might be redundant, then that might not be a good choice. 
but I think, you know, I kind of, it's a little bit of a loaded response in that I'm not aware of many debt or credit or investment instruments that kind of offer this. And so, you know, as I think about our typical limited partner, they might've had a concentration in real estate or a business venture, or like I said before, maybe excess cash or um, fixed income assets. And this is a really good way to diversify away from that. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not an RIA, so I, I'm very uh, thoughtful about advice I give or don't give, mm-hmm. but um, thinking about, well, what augments a portfolio and what can be maybe beneficial that's uh, maybe could be countercyclical to economic conditions are certainly things to be thinking about. And, you know, this kind of f- tends to fit in there nicely with uh, many of the people we talk to. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point. The countercyclicality and just understanding the underlying assets or the assets owned by the fund, you know, because you say private credit and as if it's one thing, but um, probably a hundred different private credit funds, a hundred different, you know, types of strategies or, or industries that they represent or industries that they lend to. Yeah. Um, one of the things I would just add that I really like about what we do is that for our investors, um, they know our our borrowers. I mean, these are companies that are small businesses and the communities, again, that we work and live in. And these aren't large global conglomerates that, you know, people are getting a tiny little slice of. I mean, these are ones where they have bought their products mm-hmm. and uh, can kind of feel good about that they're helping support them. And that, you know, I think is a difference maker for us as well. So your investor base is is mainly geographic or or, or local, I guess, so to speak? Yeah, you know, uh, the vast majority of our investors to date have been in the Pacific Northwest. Again, we're I'm here in Portland. You know, we're kind of Pacific Northwest centric. Uh, we can go anywhere, but this is where you know we have the most kind of uh, contacts in the community. So we've chosen in our structure. We work with accredited investors, uh, or in the state of Washington, they need to be a qualified purchaser. Most of our investors to date have come from Oregon, Washington, but you know we're we're open to to anyone obviously that's looking for something that could be you know this could be a good uh, fit for. LPs in the Midwest need income too, right? So uh, let's not, not limit ourselves. Anyone that doesn't need income. <laughs> <laughs> so Jamie, this has been really enlightening. Um, it, first of all, thank you just for your uh, I guess patience and educating me about the credit market. It's 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 not necessarily you know my expertise, but I really like to explore it. You know from that angle of an LP. So you know, thank you for your insights there, and and I also just appreciate the. Um, the unique uh, niche that your fund serves. Like I said, I think that that impact on the local economy, I think that does resonate with a lot of LPs, with a lot of wealth managers and and, and family offices. So that being said, where can accredited investors and financial advisors go to learn more about Meriwether Group Capital? Sure. So first of all, thank you very much for having me. I mean, I, I love this stuff. I've been a lender for 27 years. You know, I, my golf game's not very good. I've never done that. I've not won the Powerball. So, you know, I'm going to stick with this, I think, for a while longer because I enjoy it. And, you know, we do make a, a positive uh, difference. So uh, having said that, uh, first of all, we are actively uh, growing our investor base. Um, we have significant appetite for lending. So we have um, a desire to continue to grow our fund. Uh, potential investors could find us at... Um, MeriweatherGroupCapital.com. They could email myself at Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at Meriwether, uh, Capital, MeriweatherGroupCapital.com. 
and uh, we're pretty easy to find on the internet or on LinkedIn. We're pretty active there uh, as well. And I'll be sure to link to that website in the show notes of this episode. And as a reminder to our listeners and viewers, you can always access our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. Jamie, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.